0: Epilepsy is common in rare diseases. Why and how are testing drugs in rare diseases leading to treatments for all of us? I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. I'm joined today by Jane Williams and Narmina Nakas, executive medical directors who oversee multiple clinical trials for epilepsy in rare diseases. We learn about recent developments in rare disease clinical trials and what they have learned drug developers need to know about treating young patients with rare diseases. Epilepsy, the Central Nervous System, and Rare Disease, next on the Sineos Health Podcast. Jane Williams, Narmina Nakas, welcome to the Sineos Health Podcast.
1: Thank you for having us. Thank you.
0: So you both wrote a chapter of the book that we've talked about before. So I would suggest people go back and listen to some of the interviews that we've had with Ray Hummel on rare disease drug discovery. You both wrote a chapter on that book. What chapter did you write? And that's what we're going to talk about today.
1: Our chapter is named CNS Rare Disease
0: Drug Development. So CNS, Central Nervous System. So we're talking about rare disease drug development within the central nervous system, which is important because there are so many rare diseases that also involve the brain and the nervous system in general, right? Yeah. I think that we have a sense of that because we know that so many rare diseases also tend to show up with kind of these CNS effects that are there. You also focus specifically on Epilepsy. Tell me why, and then tell me what we need to know about epilepsy in rare diseases.
1: Epilepsy per se is prevalent about, let's say, 8 to 10% is the overall lifetime prevalence of epilepsy. So nobody thinks about it as a rare disease. But if we look at about 7,000 estimated rare diseases, about 1,000 of those are actually in nervous system, and epilepsy syndromes take a big chunk of rare disease in CNS.
2: So essentially, epilepsy is the symptom of many rare diseases, and that's one of the reasons why we focused on this particular topic for this book.
0: Do we know why? Why would epilepsy and my rather naive, I think, view of epilepsy is that it's something more like a lightning storm in a brain. Things go haywire because electrical signals are jumping around that shouldn't be doing so. But why so much epilepsy in rare diseases? Or do we know?
1: I wish we do, but unfortunately, I don't think we know. Epilepsy is triggered by many symptoms, many triggers, seizures. And I think up up to today, there's at least almost two-thirds of epilepsies that are of unknown etiology. So uh, brain is a mystery, but that's why we study it. We love to do the research.
0: And then what's the practical effect? So we have patients that have rare diseases. We want to treat those rare diseases, and some large percentage have epilepsy alongside of it. I mean, it's obviously really meaningful for patients and caregivers. What does that mean for drug discovery?
2: Because there are multiple etiologies for epilepsies right now, drug discovery focuses primarily on preventing the actual seizures themselves. So minimizing the electrical activity that you so aptly described, we're trying to minimize that electrical activity without knowing the actual cause. So we're suppressing the seizures. We're trying to prevent that actual movement of the body based on that electrical activity. So in the past over hundred years, most of the therapies that we've come out with have been on trying to suppress that activity. So for the time being, for the 21st century, we've been working on minimizing that movement. But as we find the cause for each of these different epilepsies, there are now ways to try to treat the actual cause of the epilepsy. We have benzodiazepines, for example, that are being used to suppress epilepsies. And that's just the medicine that has, because it's general use and the way it suppresses the epilepsy, there are a lot of side effects. And because now we can target some of these epilepsies at a molecular level, we can now look for ways to treat that specific type of epilepsy. I mean, we're not quite there yet. As Nomina said, we don't know exactly why some epilepsies start, why most epilepsies start, but we have some idea.
1: Yeah, and if we look into the ones that we know, like epilepsy syndromes, like the genetic ones, we're actually are actually diagnosed, like Dravet and others, especially the pediatric epilepsy, there are targeted treatments now that are being studied and also some on the market that can actually help treat the disorder, treat the specific gene, and the best way would be if we could treat one and done, uh, if possible, but that's the future. <laughs>
0: Yeah, the picture I have in mind for most rare genetic diseases is that the benefit, so to speak, from a research perspective, is that there may be one even just point mutation or a deletion or one gene that's messed up in some way and not functioning properly. And therefore, you have sometimes an exquisite or increasingly exquisite understanding of what exactly is wrong with the underlying genetics. But the downside of an extreme is epilepsy. How do you then do something about that? If we're talking about something like gene therapy, the best choice for gene therapy is a circulating cell that regenerates quickly, you know, so you can target something and find it and get drugs to it and change the gene if that were the case. And once you get to the ones that generate the new cells that come out, you're done. At the other extreme is something that has been laid down from very early in development and the brain comes to mind, and it's not really readily accessible by gene therapies and the like. I assume that that's a problem. Is that a problem that more or less guarantees that epilepsy and rare diseases are going to go together for a while?
1: You're absolutely right. The treatments and the therapies that are currently in the pipeline are promising, but the etiology, as Jane noted, that there's so many different syndromes and so many different reasons why these patients have seizures, and we are still learning. We have a great deal of approved on-market anti-seizure medications. They work well. You start with one, and you see if it's working or not. You add another one. The goal is really to get the best treatment you can with Less side effects and improve the quality of life of these patients. But this is a chronic condition and they have to take and be on treatment their whole life.
0: Yeah. And as we understand the genetics of it for say one patient, and if we can get, instead of gene therapy, we understand the pathways and therefore we can target it with something like a small molecule that can potentially pass the blood brain barrier. Once we get that done, we'll help potentially those patients with that specific genetic disorder. But the larger picture is that as we understand epilepsy as being this combination of things that all kind of cause something that look relatively similar, then we'll have yet another tool for other epilepsies, not just this specific genetic disorder, but something that's larger. And that might be another reason why CNS, epilepsy, and rare diseases, there's a bigger picture here.
2: The approach is really two pronged. And if we look at it from the genetic cause of the epilepsy, essentially you've got global dysregulation of the central nervous system. And one of the outputs is an epilepsy syndrome as a symptom of that particular genetic disease. So, yes, when you can target that genetic disease and you eliminate that neurological dysregulation, then yes, you're going to suppress the epilepsy in that particular disease. However, for those chronic conditions, for those other diseases where we yet don't have a genetic cause for the epilepsy, we're still going to need to find mechanisms, drugs, molecules that will cross the blood-brain barrier to suppress that electrical activity, regardless of the minute genetic dysfunction that's causing that electrical dysregulation.
0: What have we learned recently then from genetic diseases and epilepsy? That's obviously not my field. I'm sure that many of the people that listen to the podcast, they don't know. What's been going on there that we know now that we didn't know 10, 15, or even 20 years ago?
2: It's a difficult question, but at the molecular level, you're looking at you know sodium gate channels If you can address why the sodium gate channels are being fired, then you've got an answer there. And maybe the answer is that for any genetic disease that presents with epilepsy as a symptom, you can target those channels so that these gates aren't misfiring. I don't know if that answered your question, but for me, it seemed to have answered the question.
0: I remember from molecular biology and cell biology that sodium gate channels exist. They are in neurons and how the electrical signal is passed is to pass sodium through and into and out of the cell. But that's the extent of my knowledge. It sounds like the field has moved on. They've now become a gather just from what you said, central. Just tell me more about sodium gate channels.
1: Well, if we put it in a diagnosis in a practical way, we do studies with Dravet syndrome. In Dravet, a majority of these patients, like 80%, would have a sodium channel gene mutation. So that's something that we know, and we are definitely studying it. We are treating right now in different trials, Gervais patients with anti-seizure medications. There's in CNS a lot of drug repurposing as well. So the companies are bringing old drugs that were off market or for whatever reason. So they are repurposing them for CNS rare disease and in epilepsy especially. And they seem to work. One of them recently was approved and put on the market in children and adults as well for Gervais. The research is moving, the landscape is expanding, but genetics is an interesting field. And I think if we get to have a gene therapy for epilepsy in some time in the future it would definitely be a way to go. But until then, we work with the seizure, anti-seizure medications, small molecules. As you said, there's a lot of GABA modulators as well on the market. It's a lot to pick from, but again, science is expanding. It's a great time to be in this field. Every day I learn something new.
0: And you keep saying Trevay syndrome, that's an epilepsy that's for very young children.
2: Yes. The problem with the sodium gate channels is the neuron is innervating the entire body. So it's not just epilepsy that you're focusing on for these sodium gate channels. There are clinical studies that are being done in this particular field. A lot of it's in pain syndromes, And so there's a lot of translation. I'm sure there could be from depression versus pain versus other CNS disorders. And if you do just focus on the sodium gate channels, then you run the risk, of course, of affecting other bodily functions.
0: Yeah, it's kind of promiscuous, sounds exactly. like. exactly. <laughs> yeah.
2: No, it is. Oh, my goodness. You open one gate. And where does that gate lead you to? Are you talking about side effects with dry eyes or bowel dysfunction? And that's what makes this research so incredibly exciting and interesting is that, again, you open one door, you don't know where that door is going to lead you to. And suddenly you're looking for a treatment for epilepsy, but suddenly you're finding you've got a treatment for chronic pain.
0: Does that explain why so many repurposed drugs are being shown to have some efficacy or at least being tried? Absolutely. Oh, that's interesting. It seems like a very small problem, well, a narrow problem, epilepsy in rare diseases. Now, obviously not a small problem, but a narrow problem. But that narrow problem turns out to be a common problem among genetic diseases and then the treatments for them 80 percent, i think i heard of them have some sodium channel deficiency and that sodium channel is used throughout neurons throughout the entire body so it may have implications for outside of epilepsy in the first place so it's like science in a nutshell understanding one thing very very tiny and it expands to understanding much much more
2: exactly correct
0: both of you work as executive medical directors. You oversee clinical trials. When you do so with rare diseases, especially epilepsy, what do you think that we need to know as people listening to this that we don't know about how patients are dealing with this in patients and caregivers, especially in clinical trials?
2: Oh, that's such a great question. Because from my perspective, it's really all about the patient and the family. When they're entering these clinical trials, we really want them to be able to participate in a way that is helping them as well as helping the study.
1: I think the same, and it comes from the name rare disease. These patients are rare to find. So enrolling in these trials is never easy, but we try to make it as much as possible to cater to the sites and the patients and the families. And majority of rare epilepsy, they start in pediatrics and in childhood. So they affect the whole family. The way the protocol is designed, if we can support the protocol to be more friendly for the patients to participate, the sites would be prepared and we can support them. You know, those visits can be long. They have to have support to keep the kids entertained when they're at the site, trying to get all the procedures done, get the labs, do everything they need to. But bottom line, we definitely appreciate the patients and the families participating in research so they get the overall benefit from getting the potential drugs on the market that would work and help their kids and families.
0: I have to imagine that with the exception of those that have such an extensive family history of the disease or the condition that they're fully aware of it, that when we're coming into a patient who is a child, usually quite young, and they've just been diagnosed with epilepsy, The parents just have to be in a tailspin at that point, and the last thing on their mind would be, do I want them in a clinical trial? They just want their kids back to normal. Is that something that you have insight into? It just strikes me as we're kind of talking through this, how unsettling it must be to be, first of all, having a child that isn't thriving in a way that you expect. You find out what it is, is that their brain is misfiring. They're not at times keeping coherent thoughts and they're not developing because of that. And then they've got to be treated. And now you're being asked to understand very difficult, maybe genetic condition and very difficult science. That's a lot.
2: It is a lot, but fortunately, because epilepsy is so difficult to treat, many of these families are willing to participate in these clinical trials in the hopes that their children will get better or have some improvement in their symptoms.
1: Yeah, and they usually come with already tried something and it didn't work. So they tried the clinical trial, they're already on two or three anti-seizure medications. And in rare epilepsy, they can have up to 100 seizures a day. So these families are desperate. The epilepsy syndromes are catastrophic. Imagine having a child with 100 seizures a day and putting them in a trial. And after being in the trial, becoming seizure-free or reducing the seizures to 50%. I mean, it's a miracle.
0: Oh, That's nice. Yeah. And you're seeing, without revealing any particular clients, you're getting the opportunity to see that kind of efficacy in at least some trials, it sounds like.
2: Absolutely. Correct. Yeah. The thing that's hard is when these medications are working and then the trial ends, these patients and families are desperate, as Nurmina said, to want to continue on.
0: Don't they have compassionate use at that point? I'm kind of shocked, actually, that anybody would even consider stopping.
1: Not all. Some do EAPs, like extended access plans. or the companies would offer open label until the drug is on the market. We do see it, but it's not in all cases, which is terrible that families have to face. But some sponsors do offer extended access.
2: Right. In early phase trials, it's going to be hard to get an open label.
0: Yeah. And is it something that you as a parent would know going in? that once the trial's done, if it works, that you may not have the drug afterwards? Is that a decision that's been made before the trial started? Or do you have to wait until basically the end to find out whether or not the drug, if it works for your child, that you'll be able to keep having it?
1: Some sponsors would offer that and they would say, let's say this is a double-blind trial and they would already have an open-label protocol in place, but some don't know. And we cannot promise it to the families, but families do still participate. They have the interest because they're holding for hope something will help.
0: That seems like that would be a takeaway that a developer might have thought about, but not realized perhaps how important it was to the patients to have that extended access program are there other things that in the course of looking at many of these trials and managing many of these trials that you would see that a sponsor wouldn't necessarily know? We're scientists in labs. We don't know always what the real patient and caregiver experience is, but you do because you've seen it. What else potentially should a sponsor know and respond to on behalf of patients?
2: Well, I think the beauty of our experience is, and frankly, with Sineos Health as an organization, is we have these consortia that we work with who help us in gaining insight from the patient perspective. We have this rare disease consortium, we have now the patient advocacy consortium, and so we have been helping clients, sponsors, even in the RFP stage to make them aware of some of these challenges that a protocol will have for patients and families. So even if we're not awarded the study, at least we can give them some education at the beginning as they're moving forward in protocol development of ways to help mitigate some of these difficulties that families would face.
1: Excellent point, Jane. I was thinking the same lines. We do provide input to the protocols and the best case scenario if the client brings us just the synopsis and we can provide a lot of input in the bid process and the RFP and the consortia definitely are a great benefit.
0: Yeah. And I've heard too, so far, that the extended access program, it's important for parents and for patients. Otherwise, they're going to be desperate if it works. And we all hope it works. But also think carefully about how the patients are going to be reacting in the real world as they're being tested through the protocols. Think about a child being there throughout the day, the time, the commitment involved. Are there other things that if you're a sponsor, even in this kind of initial period, you need to think about this on behalf of patients? And maybe you haven't because you're thinking only about the science.
2: Oh, yeah. One of the most basic, especially in pediatric trials, is the taste of the medication. Oh, really? And the formulation of them, absolutely, the formulation of the medication. You're not going to want to give a child a medication that tastes disgusting. They're just going to spit it out. So in any pediatric trial, rare disease or not, the formulation is something and the flavor is something you really have to think about. Do you
0: want it flavored or do you want it to be neutral?
2: I would say you want it flavored. What do you think, Darlenea?
1: Yeah, either flavored or at least not a yucky flavor, something that children would not like to taste. You have OTC product like grape or apple flavor, something similar. I would add to that what often we advise is for the protocols for pediatric blood volume. They should know how much blood they can take from these kids at young age. Imagining that the trials are running for several months and they take blood work, oftentimes they should follow the WHO guidelines. And if they cannot get enough blood for a specific tests, they should have a priority. What tests should be prioritized and what can be done at the next visit? So that's something that we offer on all our pediatric protocols.
2: The other piece is the urine sampling, right, Nermina? Yeah. For these babies, toddlers, they're not going to be able to urinate on command. So how do you get a urine sample? You need to specify this to the site to make sure that you can get the sample if it's required in the protocol. One, you don't want all these protocol deviations. And two, you want to be able to get the assessment. So if there's any signal, an alert or some abnormality that you need to investigate further, you want to make sure that you're collecting these data
1: Right. A lot of the patients, even older ones, in rare disease, they cannot control urine, so they're in diapers, so the sites get experience in getting the urine sample from the diapers, so putting cotton balls or advising the family to hydrate them before they come to the clinic, etc.
0: No, very practical. And those are things I think that a normal scientist at a bench that's used to studying sodium channel gates, <laughs> not going to think about. I know they didn't <laughs> put that in my graduate classes. <laughs> All right. There's a lot more we could talk about, but I think that might be a good place for us to end. Jane Williams and Nermina Nakas, it's been a pleasure to have you on the Sineos Health Podcast. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having us. Thank you very much.
0: That's all for today's episode of the Sineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Sineos Health Consulting. If you want to talk through a hard decision you're making at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at sineoshealth.com. Com. For access to more future-focused, actionable life sciences insights, visit the Cynios Health Insights Hub at insightshub.health. Cynios Health, shortening the distance from lab to life.